Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Elizabethans lived through a time of cultural collapse and rejuvenation as the impacts of globalization, the religious reformation, economic and scientific revolutions, wars, and religious dissent forced them to reformulate their ideas of God, nation, society, and self. There's a new book out called Being Elizabethan, Understanding Shakespeare's Neighbors. And uh, the author is Norm Jones, professor of history and religious studies at Utah State University. And uh, he joins us uh, for the program today. Professor Jones, thank you. Nice to be here again. So you are, um, uh, of course, uh, for people, let people know you're heading toward retirement. <laughs> Nearly there. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, going to become emeritus. You were telling me, as, as I've talked to many people, uh, retirement looks like it's going to be busier than the career. Yeah, I still have grants. I still have books I'm writing. Uh, I'm traveling a lot. So, yeah, that's the whole idea. Retire yeah, so you right. can be busier than ever. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so as I read that introduction, uh, there are obvious parallels to today. Is that, mm -hmm. is, is that purposeful? You want people to see some of those parallels <laughs> in Elizabethan England? Well, I'm not sure that you could say it's pur purposeful in the sense that, that I'm writing some sort of parable. Uh, yeah. What it does do is jump out at you when you do the research. Because you realize that, that as we are, they too were going through a period of very rapid change as they saw the world in new ways, they experienced the world in new ways, and they didn't know what to do about it. And so they were quarreling about it. They yeah. were upset, they were miserable, they were quarreling about it, and that seems familiar. <laughs> we live in a quarrelsome time, right? Uh, divides, and it seems like increasing divides, globalization, you, you mentioned terrorism, um, just uh, so many parallels. And so I guess the temptation could be to say, okay, they're much more like us than perhaps they, they were. Yes. Uh, I think that the, the normal Elizabethan we would find fairly strange, although maybe the, their children we would understand. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about this era is that you begin in a time of the in which social hierarchies are assumed to be very fixed. God created everything, and it is the way it is, and you're supposed to stay in your lane. By the end of this period, in the early 17th century, these ideas are breaking down. It's not that they've rejected God or the God's creation, but God's creation is less fixed because they can't agree on what God meant. They're fighting over how to read the Bible. They're fighting over what is truth. Uh, They're fighting over the, the collapse of ways of seeing the world, and they've got to build up new ones. They've, they are busy inventing their own national identity. Uh, in part because of this globalization problem. You know, England and Scotland joined together in 1603. What does that do to your perception of yourself? It's like making Idaho part of Utah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Forsooth, right? Yes, that's right. So it's a, it's, it's a hard time for, for people to, to understand what, what to do. Yeah. Uh, again, parallels to today, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we could start with that, that, you know, you're coming out of, I guess, late medieval into early modern Mm -hmm. um, tell me about this this uh, static to dynamic. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the worldview of you know early on. Well, if we start at the beginning of the 16th century, because um, most uh, these people I call Elizabethans, I very carefully define as people, including people born in the 1520s who were adult when Elizabeth comes to the throne. So, if you were born in about 1520, you were actually born in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's a society that is hierarchical in the sense that you have the king, 
on the one on the secular side, the king, the dukes, the earls, the lords, the knights, the 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 gentlemen. It's all a hierarchy, and everyone is supposed to stay in their place. It's a hierarchy of gender as well. Women have very specific roles. Men have very specific roles. Uh, but depending on where you are, you are a master of some people, and you were mastered by other people. So it, it's supposed to be fixed. And on the, the religious side, the church is completely separate from the state, at least in theory, and you have God, and you have the Pope, and the archbishops, and the bishops, on down to the priests. And So it's supposed to be this way because God built it this way. So in 1520, that's the, the medieval world. It's also a feudal world in which people, most people are living under the, the lordship of someone. Everyone is supposed to have a master. There is no such thing as you should get out and make something of yourself. You, yeah. you, you are what you are. This begins to collapse in the 1530s, 40s, 50s as religious ideas about the individual's relationship to God undermine the church. Uh, the, it begins to collapse in England at the same time because Henry VIII's willingness to try and get rid of the church to build a more centralized national state. Uh, but, of course, you're also living in a world where Columbus just discovered America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so your the concepts of God's fixed creation get really confused when you add a couple of extra continents that no one knew about. And all these people, all these things, uh, foods, cloth, ideas, all it's a world that no one could imagine, and it's that world that by the middle of the 16th century everyone is living in. So as this happens, all these traditional structures begin to not exactly disappear, but they're breaking down. You can't say anymore, it's just the way it is because God made it that way, because now you're saying, well, but did God make it that way? And how come if God made it that way, he didn't tell us about the extra continents? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, things are, are being questioned all over the place. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there. I want to start with the, the social order. Mm-hmm. Um, my response reading this, uh, and you have a Reverend Prick in the book who, mm-hmm. who's, uh, uh, who's saying this is, this is from God. God orders this. We all have a master. We all master someone, mm-hmm. um, including in the family. The, mm-hmm. the husband is master of the wife, et cetera, et cetera. And my reaction, I guess, is most moderns would be, no, 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 no. That's far <laughs> too static, right? <laughs> far too static. You know, it it uh, represses our own potentials. But that, of course, is the way the Reverend Prick assumed God wanted things. He does, no one cares about human potential. They care about human sinfulness. And sin is caused by pride, and pride takes you out of the place where God puts you, and you try and go someplace else. And that's most likely to cause God to get very angry and drop a plague on you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, today's very secular viewpoint, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that everyone at least was supposed to, I don't know if everyone did, Mm -hmm. everyone was supposed to in this society be part of the community in a very fixed way, and that mm-hmm. derived from what we all are supposed to believe about God, right? That's right, because God, God created the, the universe. God gave you a place in that, and you have to fulfill that place. And so some people are born with more wealth and power, but being born with wealth and power means that you have more responsibility. Uh, so you, you have to take care of the people below you while you serve the people above you. So everyone is in this dynamic. And the Reverend Prick's sermon on the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, is all about this hierarchy that extends right down to the level of the children. But, of course, underneath the children are the servants. Mm-hmm. So 
You may be uh, the master of your wife and children, but if you're a servant, you are also the servant of a child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But that's where God put you. (laughs) Right, right. So uh, uh, the ideal is to accept this. What's what's the ideal? You're supposed to be pious. You should. That's a high high virtue. That's right. You accept what God what is God has expected of you. So. Having accepted this, you don't aspire to do anything other than the thing which which you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So the idea of social mobility uh, is frowned upon, deeply frowned upon. And it's it's odd in, in an age that has increasing social mobility that they don't talk about how you get there. The, because how you get there must have been God's will in some way, but... How come God let you out of your fixed place? <laughs> and so you have do you do have lots of people who complain about people who are, for instance, uh, seem to be making a lot of money because mm. God doesn't want you to make a lot of money. I mean, this is one of the places where we would be confused by these people because that takes you out of your station. Mm-hmm. And they had all these laws about how you should dress. Well, if you have this much income, you're allowed to wear this kind of cloth, and if you have more income, you get a different kind of cloth, and the. Which kind of fur can you wear? I mean, all this stuff is being sorted out by the law so that the the sheriff could come around and say, prove to me you have enough income to wear that. Mm. Yeah. So it's actually codified in law. Yes, it's codified yeah. in law. <laughs> and so much so that the tax system is partly based on this. So if you have a certain income, you have to keep a horse for the army. How do we know if you have enough income to keep a horse for the army? We check how your wife dresses. Mm. And if she dresses in a certain way, then you could afford a horse. Mm. Interesting. This is all about enforcing social hierarchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess the underlying desire, is there is this just imposed from the top, or is there a desire among the people to have this kind of order? Um, I think that there's desire on the part of most people to have this kind of order, both because they see it as good and they see it as the thing that protects them from chaos. Uh, Because if your master does what your master is supposed to do, you're taken care of, and you in turn take care of those who are below you. Uh, So this it's locally organized and everybody playing the role means that the community can function. Mm. If people stop playing the role, the community starts to break down. That's always a tension, isn't it? Community versus individual. Mm-hmm. And, and we're moving. That's one of the dynamics in this era, right? Yeah. Moving from the strict communitarian to mm-hmm. well, One individual. of the problems that the Reformation causes is that when you start saying, well, God wants me to do certain things, to worship God properly, and, and the community doesn't worship God as I know God wants to be worshiped. Uh, then what do you do? You can't stay in the community. The community may actually drive you out. You might have to move to Massachusetts right? Uh, because you can't stay in community, but you are breaking the, the essential social order by saying, I know more than the community knows about what God wants me to do. Yeah. That's interesting. I was thinking about that as I was reading the book. Um, you, you know, the the outcasts from the community ended up here, right? Ended up yeah. in America. <laughs> A lot of them, yeah. <laughs> and, and were instrumental in forming the character of mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, you arrive, you want to preserve essentially most of the, the, the order that, that, uh, mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. feel you're supposed to have mm-hmm. with, with one or two exceptions of why you got kicked out of the community back in England. Right? That's right. Because everyone would agree that God has created an order that God wants to have maintained. The problem for the people who left England to come to New England was that there was a disagreement about who how that order is constructed. Yeah. 
you know, is it appointed by the king down to the bishop, or is it elected by the, the elders of the church to choose their own leadership? That's essentially the, the core issue. Otherwise, people should still stay in their places. Mm-hmm. Women still have to be obedient to their husbands. Right. But once the genie's out of the bottle, mm-hmm. you know, you look at America, and mm-hmm. we're looking at tensions here in Elizabeth, in England. Mm-hmm. Once change begins, begins to happen, is it irresistible that it's going to accelerate? I don't know. Uh, well, it's irresistible that it's going to change. Because yeah. <laughs> once the genie is out of the bottle, the, the old system begins to break down. And one of the interesting things about the late 16th and early 17th century is how does a new consensus begin to form about what is a proper social order? Because they, they haven't thrown out God, but they've got to have enough flexibility in the social order to allow for various ideas about God to function in the same space. And, you know, we, we think about some of these people, we know Puritans, you know, all, all good Americans know about Puritans. Those Puritans are what people who wanted to purify the Church of England. Most people in the Church of England thought it was pure enough. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to have a way to have Puritans and non-Puritans in the same space. You had uh, Catholics who were in England, and as long as they refused to recognize the authority of the Pope, the English state would tolerate them but it wouldn't give them full civil rights. So you, you've got, how do you build a, a community that is still a community, but recognizes that there are people in there who don't agree with each other? Yeah. Illustrating that the theory is important, right? That's mm-hmm. how you build community, even though, uh, you know, you look at the literature and it's, it's pointing out that uh, an increasing number of people aren't conforming to the ideal, yeah. but you have to have an ideal. And that ideal changes, I guess, if you... That's right. You, you, you redefine... Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is ideas about money lending. And I did another book on that. So, but it gets really carefully redefined in the sense that rather than interest, charging interest being completely forbidden by God, you reinterpret the Bible. So the charging interest is okay as long as people are happy to pay it. But that, mm-hmm. that requires some gymnastics about how do you translate the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you're not abandoning the Bible, you're st- staying within God's order, but you have found a new way to order society that God now approves of, whereas in the old days, God didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, rapid change, the, the gymnastics of the sort we've been talking mm-hmm. about, uh, that makes fertile field for culture, right, and literature. Yeah. This, this, is, this is a fertile time. This is, of course, maybe the greatest age of, of uh, English literature, and that's where Shakespeare is in the title of the book, and he is kind of representative of that, but he's only one really good example. There are many, many other very famous poets and other kinds of artists that are playwrights that, that are alive at the same time. But almost all of the great Elizabethan artists are born in the first decade of Queen Elizabeth, so in the 1560s. Uh, Shakespeare, Sir Francis Bacon, we could go on and on with this this list. These are people who are born into the, the, the collapsing medieval culture that, and who grow up in a culture that is trying to figure out who it is. And I think that's one of the reasons why these people are so amazingly uh, interesting, because they, they, they write literature which deals with really core human concerns in a society that is trying to figure out who it is. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the basis, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're living in a totally static culture that's not changing, mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to have as fertile basis for literature. Yeah. Perhaps. That, yeah. That's right, because those tensions aren't there. Then, of course, great literature thrives on great tension. Yeah. Skipping ahead a bit, um, but you you write in the book uh, Shakespeare 
um, you know, at the end of his life, 1616, I think, mm-hmm. when he died, um, it was becoming more clear that he was going to be a foundation stone for for what the culture was going to become. But when he retired to his out to become a, a gentleman, an affluent mm-hmm. gentleman, based on his earnings, that was much less clear. Yeah, much less clear because the the the, the Shakespeare that we know hadn't been invented yet. Because um, they hadn't published the first folio, you you couldn't get your hands on Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> mm. So it was a very successful writer and producer of plays, uh, made a lot of money in the London theater, um, but then retires as as you should in the social order. As you rise in the, in the ranks, you take your money and you buy up some land and uh, live like a gentleman. But the, his the conversation that Shakespeare is in isn't far enough along yet for Shakespeare to emerge as an icon. He's one of the big playwrights, but there are a group, a group of them in, in, that are living in Elizabethan England. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're there, uh, why do you think he emerged as the icon? Well, that's a very complicated history that uh, lots of professors have written lots of books on. Uh, but I think he emerges in in part because he's got good press, but the other part of it has to do with the, the language. Um not all of Shakespeare is, is created equal, but Shakespeare has fantastic language, and, and in that language, there is a, a lot of wisdom. It speaks to people, and it still speaks to people across time. But in Shakespeare's age, he was writing to people who were in psychological pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamlet is a fine example of that. In you know, in the what do you do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> when you you're, you're you're faced with clear immorality, you're, you know you've got you've got choices to make. Do you go along with the corruption? Do you resist the corruption? Uh, do you murder your mother? Or what do you do? <laughs> right. To be or not to be—that yeah. is the question. That's, uh, mm-hmm. that's addressed to his times, I guess. Exactly, universal as well. But that's right. It, but it, but it, it feels universal because the, the language is non-specific in that way. It's a mm-hmm. question that everybody wrestles with. But in a time of rapid social change, are you supposed to be like your parents were, or like your grandparents were, or do you go out and find yourself? Uh, yeah. People have talked about Renaissance self-fashioning, which is this idea that people are beginning to say, well, you know, you should be who you are. Go find yourself. And, of right. course, for them, finding yourself is about finding the truth about God and, and living it. That's interesting. That would uh, We would tend not to think that in our time, right? That wouldn't be the, that wouldn't be the way we would frame it. Mm-hmm. Find yourself it could be apart from God, could, be, it could involve God. But mm-hmm. in, in that time— Find yourself, I guess, was radical, but it still involved. It was very much involving God. Yeah, they are not divorced from the idea that, that God created the world. Uh, what they are is that they are biblically obsessed, uh, and it's hammered into them. They're forced by law to go to church, so they have to go to church, and every Sunday they get a couple of sermons uh, what hammers all this stuff home. But what's happening in the sermons is new ways of understanding God's will, and that's why we get all these Bible translations. And the, the most known is the King James Bible of 1611. But King James ordered the new translation of the Bible in part because the other translations didn't agree with each other, and in a society that knew it had to do what God required, they had to have a, the best possible translation. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about there's much more to talk about, including uh, they had to remodel history. Hmm. Right? If you if you if you have change and everybody's supposed to believe some new things, 
you have to remember the history because <laughs> the history is going to have a big effect, right? On that's right uh, on how we view ourselves. Uh, I also want to maybe the beginning of uh, after after the break, uh, you your first chapter uh, talks about epitaphs mm-hmm. and uh, and what those meant. Um, so we'll talk about that as well. The book is being Elizabethan, understanding Shakespeare's neighbors. Our guest is the author, uh, Norm Jones. He's professor of history and religious studies at Utah State University. More following this break. With the right kind of radio, you can sometimes hear nearby lightning. Some of those sounds are called whistler waves, and for a good reason, they sound like this. Coming up, a new concerto inspired by lightning and those Whistler waves on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. On the next Punamayo World Music Hour, we'll search for La Dolce Vita in post-war Italy and take a side trip for some fun with Italian music for kids. Ni na 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 marinare I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Vintage Italia, the next Putumaya World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Norm Jones. He's a professor of history and religious studies at Utah State University. Author of uh, several books. The latest is Being Elizabethan, Understanding Shakespeare's uh, Neighbors. We've talked about parallels from uh, then, 16th century to today. And uh, we're uh, getting into the minds and hearts, hopefully, of Elizabethans. Um, and uh, this, this uh, line from the publisher, Elizabethans lived through a time of cultural collapse and rejuvenation as the impacts of globalization, the religious reformation, economic and scientific revolutions, wars, and religious dissent forced them to reformulate their ideas of God, nation, society, and, and self. That emphasizes the parallels to today. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the conversation has gone along, I wonder if any other parallels have come top of mind to you. <laughs> well, uh, one of the parallels, you know, historians are, are, are constantly aware how people misuse history. But maybe the great, the beginning of the great misuse of history is in the 16th century because it's when they start doing history as we moderns think of history. Uh, history as a process that is documented with evidence. So that's different than, than legend. It's different than, than uh, faith-inspiring stories of the saints. So what, what happens in the later 16th century is that they begin to write secular history, which is about giving the, the nation of England an identity that is different from its identity as a part of Christendom. Because Christendom is, has been is now associated with the Pope. And now we have a nation state, and we want to believe in ourselves as a nation state. We have to have a national identity. So they begin to rewrite the history. Uh, the, the, the rewriting takes a couple of forms. One is a new religious history in which it proves that all the followers of the Pope for hundreds and hundreds of years have been covering up the truth with lies and fake news and all those things, um, and repressing the truth by martyring 
the true believers. And so you get great books like John Fox's Book of Martyrs, the, 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 how the, the evil Catholics repress the true believers uh, and how we should be all be freed from that tyranny of the papacy. The other thing you get is a new national history that's, that emphasizes that the kings of England have always been free of the pope. And, of course, puts them on an equal plane with all the other kings of Europe. Because England in the 16th century, frankly, is a pretty minor player. It's nothing compared to Spain. Spain has a global empire, and England is this little tiny half of an island mm. uh, <laughs> with a little bit of Ireland attached. So they, they, they invent a new history for themselves. They go look at Roman historians, and they say, all right, we'll, we'll learn how to write history from the Romans, and we'll do a new kind of history of England that emphasizes our institutions and we'll tell them why Parliament is so important, why the king is so important. And in a lot of ways, that reinvention of English identity that these historians of the 16th century are doing carry right on. You still hear the echoes of this in the English-speaking world. The, the English-speaking world still thinks of itself as pretty special. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that can be powerful, can't it? Very powerful. But the, the, this, this identity that we invent for ourselves can be powerful. It's, in, in a way, the reason you have to... Uh, write a different kind of history for a new time is the history predicates your imagination. If you imagine your history to be one of independence, then you can imagine yourself being more independent. Mm. If your history says, nope, you've always been serfs and slaves and you'll always will be, you can't hope for anything more. There's no precedent for that. Well, that's that's going to keep you repressed. Mm -hmm. So you, the, the possibility of the future is tied up in how you imagine history. How much of that is uh, the needs that arise in your society with the change? And, and how, is that the main impetus? Yeah, that is the main the reinvention impetus. of history? The reinvention of history. Uh, history asks questions that society needs to have answered. So if, if you look at the history of history writing, that's happening all the time. You know, each generation has questions it wants to have answered, and they turn to the historians to explore the past to help create some possible answers. In, in Elizabeth's England, that's exactly what they were doing. That's why this new nationalist anti-papal history is so important, because you're living in a period where they've rejected the papacy and the nation is emerging as a, as a unit. Uh, but you've got to give it a, a grounding in history. And so, yeah, they, they are, are doing this, and they're doing it in a way that selects heroes of a new kind. So heroes are Protestant martyrs. Heroes are no longer saints. They are Protestant martyrs who kind of look like saints in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. but they're not the same thing because they were killed by evil Catholics who we have to reject. So we have to reject the previous thousand years of our history. Why was that a dark age? Mm -hmm. Because it was a bad time. We have to tell you that's a bad time. Now we're living in an age of light and enlightenment. Our yeah. history can help us with that. Yeah. Well, one of the main themes of the book is uh, is, is formation of, I guess, the individual. Mm -hmm. and, and emphasis uh, away from the collective, mm -hmm. more toward the individual. And that has to do with how, I guess, individuals see themselves, mm -hmm. what the self is, and... and um, Gaining truths from the physical world around you, right? Mm -hmm. and metaphysics rather than the theology. Well, it, it's tied to theology, but still tied to theology. Still tied to theology, yeah. but yes, uh, I actually start the book with with how do you talk about the dead? Uh, yeah. Because you know when when people uh, 
write, well, now we write an obituary. In those days, they preached a funeral sermon. They wrote an epitaph. And epitaphs now, we often, you know, a tombstone has nothing but a name and a date on it. If you were the right social order in Elizabethan England, your tombstone had your entire life story on it. (laughs) So, uh, but talking about the dead is kind of interesting because if you think about it, when you write an obituary or you write a letter of recommendation, you just change the tenses. Uh, you don't say evil things of the dead. Uh, Neil Nisi Bonum Mortui is a Latin phrase that they would have all known, speak nothing but good of the dead. And so you're going to have in a funeral sermon and an epitaph the projection of, in a way, the way you'd like to believe this person had been, Because this person now that they're dead becomes a model for how other people are supposed to live. And you can watch these epitaphs change over time uh, as you strengthen certain kinds of virtues and you begin to ignore other kinds of virtues. And so it's a a great index the way society is, is constructing the value of the individual. And by the end of this period, this individualism is much more obvious in the epitaphs than it was at the beginning. Mm-hmm. As reflected in those virtues, so, so mm-hmm. what have been what would have been the chief virtues early on versus later? Well, uh, not surprisingly, the chief virtues early on are obedience. Mm-hmm. That's right at, at the the core of what virtue is. You obey God, which means you obey your master, uh, and you obey the church. So by the the late sixteenth, early seventeenth century, what you get are epitaphs that say things like, "And she knew the Bible right well." So she has taken responsibility. She, <laughs> that's the important mm-hmm. thing, uh, rather than being a woman who has done what her husband told her to do in obedience to the church and the king, she has taken responsibility for her own religious life mm-hmm. by reading the Bible and thinking about it. And and we have these great late Elizabethan uh, deathbed scenes where the you know the 19-year-old who's dying lectures her husband about how he's never been religious enough and how she was wrong to have a puppy because she spent more time loving the puppy than loving God but this 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 character a 19-year-old girl able to preach this way you just didn't see that in the in the first part of the 16th century mm. so that's that's a the new kind of individual empowerment that men and women get because they can all read for themselves. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a big change, isn't it? Yeah, huge big, change. Yeah. To, to be able to read for them yourself and then be, to be allowed to, you know, read for yourself. I just want to read one of these. Epitaph for Sir Thomas Scott just stood out to me <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, he kept tall men. He ride great horse. He did write most finely. He used few words, but could discourse both wisely and divinely. His living mean, his charge is great. His daughters well bestowed, although that he were left in debt, in fine he nothing owed. In justice he did much excel, in law he never wrangled. He loved religion wondrous well, but he was not newfangled. <laughs> There's a lot in that. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. But tell me about, a little bit about what, what's in there. Well, uh, first he's a gentleman. That's one of the things that they're proving, because he, he kept tall men, me, meaning that he had servants. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and... That he rode well. He had horses and he had servants. And so, and he, in justice, he, d- he didn't wrangle. Um, it's probably, it's two things. He didn't bring lawsuits, but he was probably also was a justice. 
That is because if you're born to that station to have horses and, and have servants, you probably end up as a justice of the peace. So you've got your community responsibility wrapped up in that. He's living frugally, but he's living like a gentleman. And he's, and he's taking care of his family by making sure his daughters all have dowries. And, and he's, he's godly. He's religious. But that not being newfangled in religion, I think, is a great line because it sort of sums up where a lot of these people were. They, they were trying to be who they thought they should be, but there was newfangled religion. It was all around him. It was being forced on him, and he clearly is resisting. But they didn't say, and he was a Catholic. Mm, right, right. <laughs> so, so it's kind of yeah. allowing him some space to be whatever you want to write on his religiosity, but he's not newfangled. So yeah. that may mean that he's, he's not one of these crazy Puritans, but it might also mean that he's a devout Catholic. But you can choose for yourself yeah. there. And this is, as you write in the book, um, you, you quote Augustine, right? That mm-hmm. this is this, these memorials, these epitaphs, these are teachings for the living, not yes, uh, you know, not so much memorials for the dead, although they are. But that's right. And Saint Augustine had said that, that funerals are for the living, not for the dead. And so, yes, these things are all lessons to to be taken to heart by the next generation. And therefore, as you say, the 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 ideal, which changes over time, you can see the mm-hmm. ideal is what what we're supposed to be living, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a my modern take, but I uh, again, uh, you know, the my reaction to the Reverend Prick I think surprised me. I, I just I, I was shaking my fist at him. I was thinking, no, no, no but uh, this would have been the ideal, right? Uh-huh. Everybody in their order, mm-hmm. and my mind went to happiness or people. I don't know how much we know of the interior lives <laughs> of these people, or, or was that a concern? You you just lived your life. You were obedient. You you lived your role and. Well, no, happiness does happiness enter into it? They don't talk much about happiness. Okay, uh, but I think that they would assume that, of course, you're happy if you have accepted your place, yeah. because that that's at the heart of this is knowing your place and then living it, not aspiring. You know, one of the the keys to modern society is getting ahead somehow. And the Elizabethans would look at you and say, "Well, why would you want to? That would make you so unhappy if you just stay where God puts you." Do what God wants you to do. You will be fulfilled as God sees fit to fulfill you. Mm. So it's a kind of an unquestioning thing. Um, the the problem with Elizabethans who got to thinking outside of the box is they were saying, well, but how does God want me to behave so that I will be fulfilled by God? Right, right. Always a focus on religion, upon yeah. God, right? Throughout this period, even though changes are happening. That's right. But that's, that's the great arguing yeah. problem is that how do you understand what God wants you to do? Uh, yeah. And that that leads us to people, my my favorite, uh, Smith of Nottingham, who decided that no one could tell him what to do about God, so he baptized himself. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very individual act. Very individual act. Uh, Possibly heretical, right? Uh, Oh, definitely heretical, but he had to get out of England. He moved to Holland and joined the Anabaptists, but he was even too pure for them. Okay. (laughs) How did he end up? Uh, he he ends up he dies in Holland, but his okay. his followers some of them end up in America. Okay, yeah. And I was thinking this this idea of happiness. Uh, you know, this is more this is an enlightenment ideal, right? The mm-hmm. Declaration of Independence, pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Mm-hmm. I guess that, that's a different view of happiness, right? That's a much more individualistic. Yes. Uh, view right because it, it depends on the idea that each of us have a, an inherent potential, a God given potential which we must be allowed to fulfill. Yeah. 
And that's a very 18th, 19th century kind of an idea. Yeah. So there there was no room then, at least, you know, in, in this Elizabethan time for potential? It's so, so ingrained in us. Yeah. Got to live up to our potential. Right? Well, there, we there, is, there is potential. In fact, the word potential is, is a very good Aristotelian word. But, but potential is what God gave you. And in a hierarchical society, the potential that God gives you is, is tied to the station that God has given you. So there is this tension between, you know, having potential and then staying where within the bounds. Uh, you have, especially in the London business community, you've got all these people who make a lot of money because they're smart. And But how did they make that money? Well, mostly they are assumed to be sinners. They're usurers and other kinds of evil things. Uh, today we might call them bankers. But, but they were definitely evil because they were preying on their neighbors. And that's not the kind of potential that God wants you to use. Mm. It occurs to me that this, you know, this, this is a dynamic time, a time of great change, chaos even, parallels to today as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, looking to more static times, like there's, there's always nostalgia. Mm. Right? I don't wonder if there was... Yes. Nostalgia in that time. There was nostalgia um, on on many levels. I'm sort of reminded of if today, if you travel in the post-Soviet world, you you meet a lot of people of a certain age. You remember the good old days of the Soviet Union when everybody had a job and they, you know, were all taken care of. What you would have found among the Elizabethans of people who harked back to the good old days of the old church when the monks took care of people and... You know, we we were all happy together. There was Merry England. In fact, there's a great book about this period called The Decline of Merry England. Mm. <laughs> so it was remembered by some people as a really good time because everybody was in their place and nobody questioned it. And, the, you know, God was in his heaven and all was right with the world. After Elizabeth dies, because by the time she dies, they're tired of her. She's been queen for so long. And... Uh, uh, you know, 45 years is a long time. And after she, when she's old and dying and everybody's really relieved, finally, and we get a new king, and then the new king doesn't work out so well. And there's this huge nostalgia industry that starts up for Elizabeth. <laughs> so it's maybe just too human to always look back to when we were children, yeah. to the golden age, when we didn't have any worries and we mm. thought the world didn't either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's the word I was thinking of. It's very human, right? It's very human. <laughs> you probably find this throughout history, yeah. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about um, maybe some politics and, and economics. Mm-hmm. You've, you've broached a couple of those. Um, and maybe talk about some people. Uh, formulate in your mind, Professor, some some your favorite people from, from the time. <laughs> Um, The book is Being Elizabethan, Understanding Shakespeare's Neighbors. The author is uh, Norm Jones, professor of history and religious studies at uh, Utah State University. More following this. Three Mile Island was this country's worst commercial nuclear accident. It is set to be shut down this fall, which has environmentalists trying to keep it open. When you look at what climate change is doing to our environment, it's not hard to realize that we have to have this as part of our energy portfolio. I'm Kai Rizdal, nuclear power and a hotter planet. Next time on Marketplace. This afternoon at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. I love traveling. In fact, I'm on the road right now. But what about the people who live here? The people of Utah Cleave, population 13, 
are now being invaded by 250,000 tourists every year. How to be an ethical traveler. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state. Musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and everything else. Go online to our user-friendly submission page at upr.org, click on the community calendar link, and review the submission guidelines. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the Elizabethan era. Being Elizabethan, Understanding Shakespeare's Neighbors is the book. And Norm Jones is professor of history and religious studies at Utah State University, author of uh, many books. So this is the latest. And uh, there are many parallels from the Elizabethan time, 16th century to uh, today. We've talked about a lot of those. Uh, so, Professor Jones, I wonder, maybe you could uh, tell us about some people. Who are, who are some of the people that you've... Stand out to you from the time? Well, the the nice thing about the Elizabethans is there are some great characters among them. Um, I think first I'll, I'll start with the comparison of two very important people. That's Queen Mary of England and Queen Elizabeth of England. So they're half sisters. Uh, Mary is is on the throne in the 1550s, and and she's known as Bloody Mary because of the bad press she got afterwards. But she did execute. 350-some heretics. So she was enforcing the old system. If you believe the wrong thing, we, we're we sorry, we're going to have to kill you. Hmm. Uh, her half-sister uh, had been forced to pretend she was a Catholic, but then she becomes queen as Queen Elizabeth, and she has a very different way of thinking about the world. Her way of thinking about the world is, if, if you obey me, I'm not going to ask what you believe. So they don't execute any heretics. Until, well, they do one or two, but they're, there's not the old or They don't execute any Catholics. So this is, this is a nice way of framing the difference between this, the more traditional state of mind and the up-and-coming state of mind, which is you can be free to think what you want, but you must be obedient to the state. Mm-hmm. So that we got, that's context. So, so now you have people who are in many ways shaping themselves in different ways. Um, so let's start with a, with a family of people called the Lucknors. The Lucknor family, are, they're a gentry family. They start out in, uh, down on the, on the Sussex coast. Um, and one of the Lucknors, uh, Edward, marries into a family in Surrey. And so he sets up house in Surrey. And he marries into a family which is devoutly Protestant. I mean, he is devoutly Protestant, too. He goes off to Cambridge, and this is one of the diseases he catches as being a devout Protestant. So he's Cambridge-educated, devout Protestant. He's a lawyer. He marries this lady and goes and lives in her family house with her mother, who is also a devout Protestant. And they have their family preacher. And this is the Reverend Prick that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So these people are, are Puritans, and they are so devout that they keep a preacher on the house staff. He's not the, the parish minister. He's their preacher. And his job is to preach to the family. Uh, and Reverend Prick constructs this world as it is supposed to be according to the views of very forward-thinking uh, Protestants. And so his his great sermon about honoring your father and your mother, where he has some great lines like the, the line where he, he tells them that um, 
women are like fragile glass and they must be handled with great care lest they break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clearly the weaker one, yeah. sex. I mean, right. just, so you can see this is an advanced way, Protestant way of building the family. But it's still that old hierarchical thing. But otherwise, Edward Lucknor is out there fighting the papists. He's totally against papists. He's against anything Catholic. Uh, but he does build himself, well, his family builds himself quite a nice tomb. And they, they, they publish poems about him. They publish sermons about him. So advanced, cutting-edge Protestants, this is the way you're going to build the new world. It's a community that's based upon godly Reformed principles. Meanwhile, down in Sussex, you have all of his relatives. And his relatives are all over the map. Some of them become Jesuit priests, so they remain old, old Catholics. Some of them, uh, I don't think, cared much about religion, but they could take advantage of it because they were lawyers. And, and so if you work for the Bishop of Winchester, that's quite profitable until you get mad at him you have to sue him. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them becomes an Elizabethan judge and is sent off to, to run Wales. So in this family, you, you have radical Puritans, you have radical uh, Catholics, you know, servants of the Pope, that's what Jesuits do, is take an oath of obedience to the Pope. You have people who don't care about religion, and you have people whose religion is getting ahead. <laughs> so they're all cousins, they all know each other, uh, they're, they're living together in this world, but you can see each of these lives is taking a different kind of angle. Uh, uh, so that's that's one kind of common family experience. Then you have truly self-made people. This isn't the age of the expert. Uh, you have new experts, in, especially in things that require mathematical skill. Uh, geometry is, is all the rage. And geometry is useful for everything from navigation to artillery. And as all these things become more complex, you, ha- you need experts. You also have a new emerging expertise in medicine. And there's a guy by the name of Simon Foreman who's kind of famous because he's an astrologer. He also says that he has solved the, the problem of longitude. Uh, so he's a mathematician. Uh, he is capable of using his seer stones of talking to angels. And he does really well out of this. I mean, he's a totally self-made man. But he gets quite wealthy, uh, loves to brag about how much he spends on clothes. You know, in his diary, he'll, you know, I spent 50 pounds on clothing for me and my wife this year, and that's a huge amount of money. Uh, he collects a library. He becomes, a, you know, sort of a self-made autodidactic expert on medicine and becomes the society doctor. He's sort of, you know, high-born ladies consult with him, and he keeps really good records of all this, which means we have all sorts of salacious information about high-born ladies. Uh, so... He's, he's self-made, and he goes to the theater a lot, and he watches Shakespeare's plays, and he comes home and he writes these thoughts about what the play meant. Mm. So he comes from nothing <laughs> to ending up a gentleman in London with a thriving medical practice and all this, these high social connections. So he's kind of middle Elizabethan. He's, he's of that generation of experts. Another kind of character that you get is, is uh, Lady Anne Clifford. Now, Anne Clifford I love because she has a picture painted of herself at the age of 15 surrounded with her books. <laughs> and we can see from her books what she's reading. And for a 15-year-old, any 15-year-old today who was given this kind of reading assignment, uh, they would refuse. I mean, this is hard stuff. Books on everything, the, the, the global exploration, 
Cervantes is there, Don Quixote is there, books on French theology. Uh, but what you can see from her is that she's being educated as a skeptic. Because amongst all these things going on in the society, there are a lot of people who are saying, we can't know. All we can be sure of is what we know for ourselves. This is, you know, Francis Bacon writes his book on the, the, the Nova Morgana, the new scientific method. He invents modern science in this era. Why did they do that? Because they can only know those things that they observe for themselves. And Lady Anne is being given that kind of an education. She's still a good Christian, but she's a Christian of a skeptical kind that says, well, we really can't know for sure, so we're just going to have to pray and follow our own our own instincts, our own promptings from God. Uh, she's a great character, a, a real scrapper, and she doesn't die until the 1680s. Mm. So she she's, <laughs> she carries on for a very long time. But you can see in the, the last generation of Elizabethans this emergence of the skepticism that says the self has to sort it out because you can't expect the community to solve the problem of God for, your, for you. Mm. Solve it for yourself. Also, I wrote down a quote here, which has to do with this. Uh, have you expand upon this? Uh, Elizabethans were inventing the self as the principal form of human identity. Yeah, I think that's that's the punchline. I'm so relieved that you you found that <laughs> because that is the punchline of the book. Because up to this time, your your value was in community, not in who you were. And as we, we see this breakdown of concepts of community and, and fixed godly order, we see the, the rise of the idea that you have a responsibility to figure out who you are and to live in accordance with that understanding. And they would have said that's what God wants you to do, but it does mean that people are freed in some senses to go out and seek who they are. And so your conscience becomes your guide. And conscience is a really important word to the Elizabethans because if you say, I in conscience cannot do that, it kind of stops everything because the conscience is so important. This is God speaking within you. So if you in conscience can't take that oath that the queen told you to take, they kind of back up and say, well, how about if we make you post a bond? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise, what are they going to have to do, kill you? And they don't want to do that. Right. So now the self is becoming more and more important. If you feel good about it, you can lend money at interest. Mm-hmm. If you feel good about it, you can become really rich or and, drop out. Right. <laughs> and this is a pretty pretty radical change, right? It was a very radical change. From, yeah. from within, right? Yeah. yeah. I just have a couple of minutes left, and I, I, I wanted to get uh, into just a little bit of the rest of the story. So this, <laughs> all these tensions, these this chaos, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it's going to have, there's a seismic shift that's going to happen, mm-hmm. and that's going to happen in the Civil War, right? Yes. Yeah, so the, the being Elizabethan, the, the last of the Elizabethans are dying off in, the, you know, the 1630s and 40s mostly, although Anne Clifford goes right on. But uh, the tensions that come out of this, the tension between you must follow your own conscience and uh, the tension or with the concept that you must stay in your place in the hierarchy, are very difficult to resolve because you have people in power who want you to obey the hierarchy, and so to obey your own self often means to uh, drop out and move to Holland or move to New England or something. Uh, You can become a Quaker, and there are different ways of dropping out, but the the tension is intense, and it it is reflected in the politics. And so the, the idea of the authority should come from the people 
or the Elizabethan invention, that's also called Presbyterianism, the authority comes from the people, whereas the other people would say authority comes from God to the king. Do you obey the king because of God, or do you obey your conscience, which is expressed in the congregation of the church? These tensions turn into the, the British civil wars in the 1640s because the, they can't resolve them. So Parliament, of course, not only kicks out the king, but cuts the king's head off. And then all that turns into chaos, and they bring the king back. But when they bring the, the, the king back in the 1660s, it's not the king that Henry VIII and Elizabeth would have thought as a monarch, because now you have a new system with emergence of political parties. But it, it, this is the result of this tension between do you obey your individual conscience or do you obey the hierarchy that God has placed over you? Very interesting. We're at the end of our time, but uh, it's interesting to, to get into the minds of hearts of of, of these these people. And again, very, a lot of parallels to today. The book is Being Elizabethan, Understanding Shakespeare's Neighbors. And the author is, uh, has been our guest, Norm Jones, Professor of History and Religious Studies at uh, Utah State University. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, real pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. continues the StoryCorps tradition by sharing stories of hope and healing as told by your friends and neighbors throughout Utah, including Sean Talley, manager of Shock Trauma Nurses at a Utah hospital. I'm one of those guys that is only really happy when I feel like I'm helping someone. That's what makes me tick in the morning. Stories of hope and healing shared weekly during Morning Edition and All Things Considered only on Utah Public Radio.